Well, welcome again. Um, if you have a Bible with you, I want to turn to the book of Romans, chapter 9, or you can follow along the same text as printed there in your bulletin. We've been going through a series on the book of Romans, and we come to this uh, ninth chapter, which is really, really inescapably <laughs> about predestination. And as I was working on this this week, I was realizing how seldom I've preached sermons on predestination, which is sort of like going to the dentist and him saying, I don't do a lot of fillings <laughs> like I'm a Presbyterian minister. We're supposed to do this. And, but I realize I haven't much, and you'd think I would because I'm like an adult convert to this whole Presbyterian thing. I, I was raised well enough, but I fell in with a bad crowd in college and uh, wound up by the end of college being a Presbyterian, partly because I lost all my arguments about this uh, issue about uh, who does what in a human being's life with God, how much of it depends on us and how much of it depends on God. Um, so I had the zeal of a convert with it for a while, but being a minister for as long as I have, I've gotten really weary of provincial arguments and shining a light on things that are like peculiar just to one particular denomination. Um, it always makes me sad about how divided the church is. And so we like to speak with our loudest voice about the things we agree with most Christians about. And so partly for that reason, I haven't liked to harp on the Presbyterian distinctive beliefs and things. But as I was thinking about that this week, I realized it's not really very provincial in the church. Um, all the uh, best Catholic thinkers have believed this from Augustine to Aquinas to Blaise Pascal. Uh, most of the Baptists, I was raised a good Baptist, most of the Baptists historically have believed the same thing the Presbyterians do about this. You think of John Bunyan, the great uh, 16th century writer, the William Carey, the father of the modern missions movement, John Piper, famously today, um, all believe the same thing we do about this. Uh, the Lutherans, Martin Luther on, have had this in their Confessions of Faith. The Anglicans in the Church of England all have this in their Confession of Faith. So, yeah, maybe we're not as backwater and obscure as I feel like we are most of the time. Um, but no matter how many Christians uh, believe what Paul says here, it's still controversial. And even Paul recognizes that as he writes it. Like, this is, uh, it's, it's troublingly difficult, what he says about God's choosing of people, and that's certainly what he talks about here. Uh, but it's worth the trouble, it's worth the, uh, the vexing feelings that we get, the questions that it raises that it doesn't answer. Uh, it's worth it for us because this idea of God's um, sovereign control of his world, and especially in our relationship, his initiative, uh, is the bedrock of our security as Christians. So that our life with God doesn't depend on how tight a grip we keep on him, but rather on how tight a grip he keeps on us. And that's kind of the point of this idea, and it's the way that the Bible speaks about it. So uh, the other thing it does is it just hammers home the point that in our dealings with God, everything is a gift. The Christian life is grace from first to last. Deserve has nothing to do with it. Uh, God loves us in spite of who we are, not because of who we are. And uh, this teaching really cements that. 
And so for those reasons, it's worth looking at. Uh, Paul jumps right into the middle of it with both feet and very unapologetically in Romans 9. I'm going to read just the first few verses there and then read the rest of it as we work through the argument. So let me pray for us and then we'll read the scripture. Father, please uh, give us help as we think about these things. They're clearly beyond us um, and leave us with questions. We certainly can't take the measure of you, but we want to know what you reveal to us and to have faith that your promises are solid and true. So help us open our hearts and minds to you as we listen to your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So starting at verse 6 of Romans chapter 9, it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they're his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Paul doesn't use the word predestination in this passage. He used it in the passage just before this, just dropped it like a bomb right there into this passage about how Christians can be assured that they'll never be separated from God's love and You know, the verse that people want to embroider that says all things work together for good for those who love God, if you're familiar with Romans 8. And right after that, he says, everyone he called, he predestined, he called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. Boom. You know, like, it's like, you know, mentioning the president's name at Thanksgiving dinner. Like, you drop that word into the conversation, and things are going to change then, right? And he just drops it and goes on. But then he comes back in Romans 9 and really... Uh, elaborates on what he meant and what he means. Um, And that is that the reason you're secure, that nothing can separate you from Jesus's love for you, is that God has you in his hands, not that you have God in your hands. It's his grip on us that matters the most. And the reason he jumps into it here and really goes on for three chapters talking about the Jews, which is sort of surprising when you look at the argument of Romans, the reason he comes to this is he, is he realizes that a lot of the people in this church in Rome are Jewish. And, um, and all their friends and family members, for the most part, have not received the Messiah when he came. They've rejected him. And so they're saying, wait a minute, you're saying we're secure in our relationship with God because we've been adopted and brought into his covenant and we've been given his promises. Well, the Jews had all those things. And look at them now. So I don't feel so secure all of a sudden. Uh, How am I supposed to understand God's promises and how I'm supposed to feel all safe and secure uh, in light of what I experience with uh, my Jewish friends and relatives? And so he jumps in to talk about that. That's usually not our question today. Our question is usually, if you look around and see how, uh, what a hot mess the church is and how divided we are and how unimpressive we are, it sort of gives you credibility issues to say, is, am I really sure this is the true story of the world, that God is uh, redeeming his broken world and setting it back right side up through Jesus Christ? Is that really true? Um, because, wow, the church is unimpressive. And then as a corollary of that, you start to think, and, and is my hope well-placed? My hope in Jesus myself, is that, am I believing something that's really solid or not? And Paul's addressing the same kind of thing. If you're going to look at what's going on with God's chosen people, the Jews, and then figure out, am, 
if I got this right or not, am I secure or not, then you're going to need to have some of your questions answered about this. And his first answer, you know, the verse 6 says, God's word hasn't failed. Right? It's not that God's word has failed. It's not that the promises uh, uh, failed or something like that. Um, and what Paul does here is weird because he, he asks us to look at these things from God's perspective. And that sounds uh, super dangerous and arrogant to me. Right? Even if you tell me something true, if you give someone as limited as I am uh, the instruction to look at things from God's perspective, I'm going to mess it up, I feel sure, one. And then, you know, then I'm foolish. You know? so, and I certainly don't want to go around saying I've got the truth cornered and I'm the only one who understands this. So, but he does ask us to think about things from God's perspective here. And we'll try to be modest and just listen to what he says rather than extrapolate out from that with all the brilliant conclusions we draw from it. But he's kind of saying from God's perspective, you'll see that um, his promises haven't failed at all. His plan for the world is still fully in place and it's going forward just fine. Uh, but you're probably not going to get that from looking at your circumstances yourself and trying to suss it out. The problem is when he tells us this, he raises about as many questions as he answers, maybe more. And so as we look at it, um, just realize that if you leave here with all of your questions answered, you probably weren't listening very well to Paul or to me. <laughs> so you're going to leave with some questions, I would think, because the subject he raises is God's discriminating love. Doesn't that sound awful to say? God's discriminating love, which sounds like a big limitation on God's love somehow. And the Bible doesn't put limitations on God's love, but it does describe his love in this passage and other places as being discriminating. That is that he chooses some, like he chose the Jews as his people generally in the Old Testament. Here he says, uh, it's not even just all the Jews that I choose in that way. And you can see that from Israel's history. Right? He starts giving examples. Like he talks about Abraham's family and uh, beginning in, uh, at the end of verse 7, he says, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That's Abraham and Sarah. They had another son, Ishmael. First, well, Abraham had another son, Ishmael, who was circumcised, and he was Abraham's son. But the promise of God went through Isaac, not through Ishmael. Um, God chose to work through Isaac instead of through Ishmael. And so he says, this means it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And then he talks about their children, Isaac and Rebekah. In verse 10, he says, When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, and they're twins, he says, In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And uh, that's from Malachi, uh, where God says that. Um, God's purpose in election might stand. Um, twins hadn't done anything good or bad. Not because God looked down the road and saw that Jacob was going to be this uh, awesome, receptive, uh, spiritual person, and Esau wasn't. At best I can tell from the Bible, Esau was, 
I would rather know Esau than Jacob, let's just say. He seemed like a better guy. Um, It wasn't because one of them was going to be good and one was going to be bad. It's that God decided to give his promise and blessing to Jacob and not Esau, even though Esau was the firstborn. And he says this was in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Election, God's choosing. Uh, God's determination uh, is what causes this. Now, um, and then at the end of the passage, if you look over the next page in the bulletin anyway, um, down to verse, around verse 25, he starts to say that the, uh, the plan to include the Gentiles was God's plan all along. And the prophet Hosea talks about this in verse 25. He says, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. The very place where it was said to them, you're not my people. There they will be called the sons of the living God. And then he quotes the prophet Isaiah, which presumably, who is presumably familiar to them. And he says, you know, Israel has always been a matter of a remnant. Like there's the whole organization, everyone who's racially Jewish, but then there's a remnant of people who have a relationship with God that's authentic. And so he says, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. Isaiah predicted if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So uh, he says there's a remnant of Jewish belief now. Boy, in the next couple of chapters, there's a surprisingly good future, it seems like, for uh, the Jews with regard to belief and their acceptance of the Messiah. But for here, he's just saying, look, there's a remnant, and that's a subset of all of Israel. And so God hasn't forsaken the Jews, but um, like a lot of times in the history of the Old Testament and now, uh, you don't see a lot of robust faith in the Messiah among the Jews. Um, you still with me on this? So does it, do the objections not come up in your mind that it make God, makes God seem capricious? That, that he would choose some and not others? That he would... Give his mercy to some and not others. That doesn't seem fair to me. Um, And then also when you hear that, you start thinking, does this mean that people are just like puppets and robots who don't have any choices to make? That like, it's just, we're basically all sleepwalking, you know, must believe in Jesus or must not. You don't get that picture from this or other places in the Bible, but it does raise the questions. You wonder uh, what's going on. some people have tried to sort of skirt Romans 9, and I've tried very hard to go with them. Uh, but I can't get there uh, by saying this, that he, God's really, Paul's really just talking about God's purpose for the Jews as the great witness in the world. That they failed in their mission to represent God in the world, and that's what he chose them to do. And that's the choice that's been kind of taken away from them and now given to the church. That he's not talking about individuals and their relationship to God and their salvation, to use the biblical term. He's just talking about their mission. But the way this whole passage is framed doesn't really allow for that. Because at the beginning of the passage, just before what we read, Paul's saying, I'm in utter anguish for the sake of my Jewish relatives, my countrymen. He said, I'm in anguish because they've rejected the Messiah and I would wish myself accursed if they would believe. So he's not just saying, 
well, they're not going to get to do the mission now, and the church is. He's more worried than that about them. And then at the beginning of verse 10, uh, chapter 10, verse 1, after this, he says, it's my heart's desire for them that they would be saved. So he's talking about more than just their mission. He's talking about their whole relationship to God. And he's talking about it in these terms of God's choice. So Paul feels the objections already. You know, it's not the first time he's talked about this, apparently, because these are the objections we all raise. Um, the first one is that this isn't fair. It's not fair. It's not just for God to set his mercy on some people and not others. And uh, so look at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Yeah, that's probably what we say. <laughs> is there injustice on God's part? And he says, by no means. And then he gives this example from Moses' life with Pharaoh. Um, trying to, when Moses was pleading with Pharaoh to let the children of Israel leave slavery and go. And Pharaoh kept vacillating on it. He said, you know, sometimes Pharaoh hardened his heart and said no. Sometimes Pharaoh softened his heart and said yes. Sometimes it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart and he said no. But this is what Paul says here. He quotes, he says to Moses, verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And this is a very uh, stark argument. But what he's saying is mercy is never obligatory. You're never obliged to show anybody mercy. Mercy is always a gift. If you show some people mercy and not other people mercy, you're not being unjust because mercy is never obligatory. Mercy is a gift. And uh, it feels kind of like when God answered Job in our Old Testament reading today, when it's like, why don't you uh, put your hand over your mouth for a minute and listen and not think you got me figured out? Because usually we get softer answers than this in the Bible. He's like, I'll have, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Um, then he goes on. It depends, in verse 16, not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Um, and the idea of mercy is that nobody deserves it. It's not like there are a bunch of really good people and God's being mean to them out of caprice. caprice. Um, it's also not like there are people dying to put their faith in Jesus and wanting to become Christians and being told no. That's not the idea. But mercy is given to people who don't deserve it and for the most part aren't looking for it, which is most of our testimony as Christians, right? God came after me. Uh, he sought me when I was wandering away. Um, he wasn't rewarding me for being uh, such an awesome spiritual seeker. He was giving me mercy that I didn't deserve. He goes on, but I just the old line on this is that uh, God's people are chosen. They're not choice. Right? They're not chosen because they're good, because they're choice. They're chosen because God is merciful. They don't deserve it at all. They're a lot of times way less deserving than their friends who aren't Christians. So verse 17, he uses the idea of Pharaoh saying that um, he said to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you. And that my name be, might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So, wow. 
Now, he's not saying Pharaoh was like, gosh, I really want to let these these Israelites go and leave my slavery and thrall them and go worship their God. I really want to let them go, but somehow I feel hypnotized and I must not do it. No, he hated them. And he didn't want to let them go at all. But it says sometimes in Exodus, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And sometimes it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And both are true. Both are true. But boy, that's very stark. He hardens whom he will. In chapter 1 of Romans, Paul describes it nicer. He says, uh, God lets people go their own way. Sort of gives them up to their own trajectory, uh, which has the same effect and result. It's easier to wrap your mind around. So, So really, here's the argument. Is God unjust? No, because it's not unfair to show mercy selectively. Okay, (laughs) I understand that answer, but uh, that's sort of a terrifying answer. But it's not unfair to show mercy selectively. And then he goes to the other objection, which is, isn't this determinism? Like, how can God find fault with people if he's the one who does the choosing and things? Verse 19, you will say to me then, and yes, we will say to you then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? And, yeah, I mean, if, how do you blame Esau if uh, Jacob was the one that was chosen? I mean, how do you, how do you wrap your mind around that? And uh, doesn't that make us puppets? Isn't this some sort, form of determinism, kind of an Islamic idea of God's sovereignty? And uh, if you ask me that, here's how I would answer. As a PR man for God, feeling like I've got to explain things for him, and trying to make him look better, <laughs> I would say things like this. Well, look, God is sovereign. He's in control of his world, but human beings are also responsible. And both of these things are true. And there's a mystery of how God can be fully in control and human beings can be fully responsible and make real choices. We don't understand how these things go together, but they're both emphasized in the Bible and they're both equally true. Um, Like two sides of a coin, God is sovereign and man is responsible, I would say, truly. Then I would say qualifying things like God grieves the fate of people who reject him. Think of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem after the triumphal entry. God grieves at unbelief. He grieves. His heart is broken by people who reject his Messiah. And God desires the salvation of all people and offers Salvation, reconciliation to God, he offers it freely to all people. Yes, he certainly does, biblically. And he commands everybody to repent. He wants everyone to repent. And as C.S. Lewis said, the greatest monument to free will ever created in the world is hell itself. That God will allow people to rebel against him uh, to the uttermost. That's what I would say. And you would still say, eh, I don't know. What does Paul say? He says, shut up, you pipsqueak. (laughs) Basically, that's a paraphrase. Um, He says, verse uh, 20, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What, What is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? 
What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. I feel like not commenting on that. (laughs) He basically says, don't think you've got God measured and you've got him figured out and you can explain the mysteries of providence and God's sovereignty because you can't. You don't have a yardstick that can measure God. And at some point, in most points in the Christian faith, questions are welcome and answers are gracious and generous. Um, But at some point, you have to sit back and say, I'm not the judge of God. God is the judge of me. And I'm going to have to show some humility here. And this seems to be one of those places. I'll just say this. If you are describing Christianity in a way that is deterministic, that is, that makes human beings less than fully human, less than the image of God, that takes away their responsible choices, uh, then you're describing something other than Christianity because there's no determinism, biological or spiritual, in Christianity. But if you try to diminish God's 100% sovereignty at any point, you also are caricaturing Christianity. God is 100% sovereign. Human beings are 100% responsible, and both of these things are true. And so that's what we're being told here. Why are we being told this? It seems to me that God could not tell us any of this, and parts of our lives would be happier. Because it raises questions we can't answer. But there are reasons we have to have it. So I'll give you a couple of implications. uh, uh, A couple of uh, disclaimers and one positive implication. The disclaimer is this. If you talk about this, be careful. If you've been around us very long, uh, you'll know that Arguing that we're right about this doctrine with other people and proving that they're wrong is uh, an illicit hobby of Presbyterians. It's inappropriate and it's silly because what you find yourself doing is becoming arrogant and belittling of other people trying to argue about God's grace. And if you believe that God's grace is completely sovereign... That all of your standing with him and all of your good doctrine, such as you have, is a gift from him, then you don't brag about it and get arrogant when you talk about it. All right, so, someone, I think Doug Wilson is a minister who, who uh, came up with the phrase, the cage stage. And that is, said for a while, if people start believing in this uh, doctrine of God's sovereignty, you need to put them in a cage because they're not going to talk about it well. All right? And I feel his pain. The doctrine of God's sovereignty is more like a color television to me. I can watch it and enjoy it, but I don't understand how it works. I have no idea how a color television works, but I can watch it. And the doctrine of God's sovereignty is that way too. We can appreciate it and benefit from it, but we don't understand it. We don't have God nailed down in a box. And then... Last part of being careful how you talk about it is if you can talk about this like Paul does here 
but you don't have the anguish in your heart that he has at the beginning of the chapter, then you probably don't have it nailed. Because he's saying this crying on the page as he's writing it. And if you're saying it in some pompous way, then uh, maybe it's time to be quiet. So be careful when you talk about this. Second thing is, there's a worry that seems to come up that this doctrine disincentivizes people to carry on Jesus' mission in the world. Just makes like we're not going to persuade our friends to become Christians because we think, well, if God chooses them, they're in, and if he doesn't, they're not, and so it doesn't matter. And that's uh, an abusive caricature as well. It's just, it's just not true. I mean, it was true in the Old Testament somewhat. The people of Israel decided they liked being chosen, and they weren't very concerned about their neighbors around them. Uh, but that's not really been the case in the church. Because like Paul, who is an unbelievably sacrificial missionary, is the one writing these very stark words. He's the one who's enduring beatings and imprisonment and stonings and abuse at every turn to try to persuade people to become Christians. He certainly doesn't feel a contradiction between what he's saying here and the need to tell people about Jesus and the hope that's in him. Nor has the missions movement in the modern world been characterized by people who didn't believe this. The founder of the modern missions movement is William Carey, who was a robust... Calvinist is usually the the term we use as shorthand for this. I don't know if that's the best term, but... He was a robust Calvinist. John Eliot, the grandfather of the modern missions movement, was the first missionary to the American Indians, uh, also a robust Calvinist. The Baptist Adoniram Judson also believed these things. George Whitfield, the great preacher of the First Great Awakening in America and in England, uh, also believed these things. More close to our time, Francis Schaeffer, the great missionary in Europe and Switzerland, in the middle of last century. John Piper, the great advocate of missions uh, in the American church these days. The PCA guy, James Kennedy, invented evangelism explosion, a really, uh, you know, widely used evangelism program that you've seen around. And all these people believe that, that every Christian is somebody that God has chosen. And every time someone comes to faith, it's a miracle of God's grace. And yet they were very zealous in missions. And our church so far is, and I hope will grow in that. But it's not a disincentive for us to share our faith. We don't know who is chosen or not. uh, And we know that the gospel is offered freely to everybody. And that we're to persuade people and pour out our hearts in prayer for people uh, to become Christians. Okay, two disclaimers there. The, The big reason we're told this is for our security. So that we'll feel secure in Jesus' love and know that he's got us and isn't going to let us go. That's the big reason we're told this. It, this isn't told us so all of our philosophical questions can be answered because they aren't. Um, it's not told us so that we can like pretend we know who is chosen and who is not, who is elect and who is not. We don't know that. It's given so we'll feel secure in Jesus Christ. So believers won't worry all the time about their own standing with God. Because kind of the way I was raised was this. Are you worried about whether you're a Christian or not? Well, ask yourself, were you super sincere when you first became a Christian? I'm like, well, I was nine. I don't know. I I don't know. I can't remember what I thought when I was nine. Um, I remember I had to wait till I was nine. My mom wouldn't let me get baptized before that, right? So I don't know if I was sincere or not. 
So that doesn't make me feel secure. Or do you ask yourself other things like, wow, do I, uh, have I gotten over most all of my struggles with sin? So I know I'm really a Christian. <laughs> you know, if you've gotten over all your real struggles with sin, you're not a Christian <laughs> because your conscience is hard. Do I have this crazy love for all my fellow Christians like the Bible says I will? That does not make me feel more secure as a Christian. <laughs> Do I have the just unbelievably robust devotional life? Uh, is my doctrine perfect? If you ask yourself those questions, which is what the church often tells people to ask when they're worried about whether they're a real Christian, all you're looking at is yourself. How firm is my grip on God? Am I fixing to let go of Him? Am I, am I sure I've got a tight enough grip on Him or not? And that's a place of utter insecurity. Uh, the security we have is that God has held us, that he's come to our rescue in Jesus Christ, set his love on us before we existed, and is never going to let us go. That's what makes us secure as Christians. And if you're one of these, like, uh, extra credit students who says, yes, but how do I know I'm elect? I'll just tell you, only Christians ask that question, and you're fine. All right? <laughs> I'm pretty sure about that. I don't know of any exceptions. But if you... If you start having doubt about being a Christian because you're not worthy, you don't understand what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to be not worthy and to be rescued by Jesus' mercy. So don't look at your worthiness for your security. Look at Jesus' grip on you for your security. All right. Got any questions left? I do. (laughs) But the bedrock is this. God knew you and every tawdry thing about you before you existed set his love on you before you existed, came to get you through Jesus Christ before you existed, loves you unchangeably, and is never going to let you go. Now let's pray.